Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Positive Talk Podcast with co-hosts Julie Homridge and Chuck Allen. They are in Season 2, Merging Faith and Psychology, and you picked a great day to join in the conversation. At Positive Talk Podcast, a licensed therapist and a pastor join voices to help us all discover a more peaceful and purpose-filled life. So settle in and join Julie and Chuck for this week's episode of the Positive Talk Podcast. Hi, everybody, and it's a great day to find an encouraging and positive word here at the Positive Talk Podcast. And thanks so much for that introduction, Julie. This week is part two of a topic that that we all have to deal with, stress and conflict in our marriage and relationships, and then how do we handle that resulting and often lingering conflict that comes often from a point of stress or a trigger that gets stress underway. So why don't we jump right in and Mm -hmm. Julie, just get us started as if we were in a session that you were teaching that we could kind of glean from your experience and your knowledge. Sure. So if you ever feel like you and your partner are arguing over the same things over and over again, well, you may be right. So John and Julie Gottman are the marriage researchers that we've been referencing throughout this series. And their research shows that 69% of problems between couples are what they call unsolvable problems. They also call them perpetual problems. So that leaves 31% of problems as solvable or problems we won't repeatedly return to. Well, I, I feel like I see that in my office week after week. And when I'm, when I'm attempting to counsel a couple, uh, regardless of how long they've been together, the same issues seem to rise to the top. And often folks can't really get past them uh, mm-hmm. to things that could might be very beneficial. But the concept of unsolvable problems seems like we all need to understand that better and understand Gottman's findings a bit better. I know ever since you told me about their research, I've been fascinated by it. And, and here's why. If indeed we love our spouse or partner, friend, whoever you're associating this conversation with, Again, based on the Gottman findings, we desperately need the solutions or the coping mechanisms needed to remain in peace or greater peace and not allow that which is unsolvable or seemingly unsolvable to become defeating. Right. And, you know, when I tell couples this about their research and this this 70 percent versus 30 percent, they either feel one of two emotions. They either feel defeat or mm. relief. So there's either the sense of, oh my gosh, 70% of our problems are not solvable, or they feel relief in the sense that, wow, okay, this means that maybe there's not something inherently wrong with us as a couple. It just means that we differ in our approach to things. And there's a way for oh, us okay, to hold be able on. to work You, you got to stop there for just a minute. All right. You just <laughs> take a time out here because what you just said to me is almost like a, a tweetable moment to recognize that, oh my gosh, this could be a thing that I recognize as, wow, we're, we're not outliers. We're normal. You know, and yeah. like, wait, we're, we're dealing with the same struggle everybody is, which means if everybody's dealing with it, then we all have some measure of being able to overcome it. Right. Well, and when we think about unsolvable problems, they're really at the core made up of these fundamental differences in personality, Mm. which we all have. It could be a difference in personality or temperament or just simply lifestyle needs. 
I think right. some examples of this are maybe differences in activity level. You have one partner who wants to be busy all the time and one who prefers to be more low key. Perhaps you differ in your child rearing or your discipline preferences, or as is the case with my husband and I, your comfort with risk versus convention. We tend to differ mm. in that. One is a little bit more comfortable with risk and the other is a, is a bit more conventional. Um, this could be differences in neatness or organization, but what Gottman shows us is that even if we return to these problems again and again, we can work through our communication right. patterns in relation to that. So we don't get into what Gottman calls gridlock, and this is when right. it becomes a problem. So gridlock is when our communication ceases to be productive and we move toward emotional disengagement. So just because mm. we disagree doesn't mean that we have to be disconnected. And I think that's a helpful distinction that our problems don't have to lead to emotional disconnection. But as you've probably seen, and I have as well, sometimes these problems do cause challenges when we enter into gridlock. So I'm sure you've seen that a number of times in your office check when couples, you'll see they'll come into the office for pastoral counseling and they're sitting on opposite sides of the room. They don't even want to connect. They're so emotionally disconnected. You are so spot on. I, I you, you can feel tangibly the tension mm -hmm. when that couple mm -hmm. walks in the room. And it's not so much, uh, you know, like I want to scratch your eyes out kind of tension. Yeah. It's more like I've tried everything I know to do and we're still stuck kind stuck, of tension. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, one of the things I've learned in just talking with you over all of these times that we've recorded together and met together is the concept that we we really can fix most of our issues with healthy communication. That's mm -hmm. fascinating to me. So many things happen with just healthy communication. So I, I see gridlock and I see it in every generation at every different stage of marriage or relationship. Mm -hmm. And the question, knowing that this happens to so many of us and to such a significant degree, almost to the degree that every one of us deals with it, mm -hmm. is how then do we address gridlock and how do we see it coming and what helps solve it? Yeah. Well, Chuck, one tip is to seek to reach beneath the surface in those moments and let each person really explain the reasoning behind why their values are so strong in that particular area. So in partner conflict, understanding the other person actually paves the way toward the beginning of compromise and resolution. I think oftentimes we're so quick to want to fix the situation that we try to come to a compromise before we even truly understand what the other person wants or needs. Wow. And, you know, that seems to keep us from being able to enjoy and experience peace and health in a relationship because mm -hmm. when, when we just kind of settle, then we, it's like climbing a mountain and stopping halfway up the mountain thinking, you know, I'm just going to take a break. Then you fall asleep yeah. and you don't wake up until everybody else comes back halfway and says how beautiful it was. You know, it's just, yeah. it's, it's just such a confusing thing to try to do. I yeah. have, uh, I've discovered a little exercise that in by no means is scientific, maybe not even therapeutic, but it seems hey, to be, it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, I've seen it work in so many different ways, which is really this simple. Um, Write down no more, no more than five, not less than three things that are super elementary about uh, 
how are you going to know that your spouse or your partner values you? Like, how do you mm-hmm. convey and receive value? And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the interesting, Julie, is to get it so elementary that it sounds foolish. Yeah. Because about the time you get it that elementary, you're really talking about what matters. I tell the story all the time right. about uh, Jenny and I. We'd been married a couple of years and uh, we're brushing our teeth. And um, she says, you know, I used to love it when you did nice things for me. And I'm like, what the heck? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not really that bad a guy. And he was like, so all day long, I'm just thoroughly ticked off. Right. So, yeah. and you know how things are, you know, you let things sit like that and they just get worse. They never get better. Simmer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So by the time I get home, it's like, by God, we're doing business now, you know, and we're dealing with this and I'll never forget. She just looked at me. She said, Oh, I just remember when you used to buy me flowers. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. Okay. How simple is that? Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, every, you know, when I go by Trader Joe's these days, I know stop and buy flowers. Right. Mm -hmm. Now the key Mm -hmm. here, Julie, is I think buying cut flowers that are going to die in a few days are stupid. Okay. I mean, honestly, (laughs) I just. Jenny likes it. (laughs) There you go. Okay. So (laughs) what I heard and what I acted on was that is one tiny way in which she Mm -hmm. feels valued. So, yeah. I mean, it was funny, though. Uh, she and I did the opposite, trying to figure out mine. And th- that got Uh-oh. really interesting because Uh-oh. she has this weird spurt of energy, like at 930, 10 o'clock at night and yeah. loves to start a project. And uh-huh. I, I'd rather have a shot of chlorine than start a project at 10 p.m., <laughs> you know. And so, yeah. I just said, hey, you know, my version of flowers is I'm done. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> eight rest. o'clock, I'm done. Yeah, I so, love that. My version of those. flowers. Yes. Yeah. My version but of flowers. We all have those, right? I know that's a silly little exercise, but you know what I've learned, Julie, is that when we think that our uh when we think our significant other should understand what we need or want and we mm-hmm. don't communicate it, we're gonna miss the target most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think sometimes it can be as simple as this is my version of flowers and you know, other times there are some deeper things going on. You know, this is the stuff that I see more in my office in relation to trauma. Sometimes there's trauma or triggers that contribute to the gridlock that we talked about. So I'll give a personal example. My husband didn't understand for the longest time why I would get so frustrated when he would take my son to the, to the bus stop early in the morning and he Mm. would just, they would just leave and he wouldn't let me know that they were leaving. He thought I'm doing her a favor. I'm letting her sleep in. And it seemed so silly to him that when they would come back, I would say, well, you didn't let me say goodbye. And it took us sitting down and me vulnerably explaining to him that I actually never got to say goodbye to my dad before leaving for Mm. school the day that he suddenly passed away. And so it was very important to me to be able to say goodbye to our kids whenever Mm. possible. Now, like you mentioned, it might not be as drastic or traumatic as a death, but people don't have strong reactions to things for no reason, right? I mean, there's yeah, always yeah, something that's so good. underneath the surface. It could be protective measures from past experiences. It could just be your neurological wiring. Um, it could be spiritual disconnection or just a preference. So let's talk a little bit more about this, Chuck. How can we move through this? And I think one main way to get past gridlock is to start becoming curious rather than judgmental about our partner's reasoning behind their strong reaction to things. Wow. So you dropped two pretty 
significant bombs on us right there. The first one is people don't have strong reactions to things for no reason. That's so good. Oftentimes, I think we forget there's a reason behind what got us here. Yeah. 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 So and we, but, but yeah. That's, that's significant, Julie. Yeah, I think that can help us also if we tend to see how people are reacting on Facebook or surrounding political conversations. We don't understand, but the fact is all of their life experiences have led them to their belief system. And so they believe that strongly for a reason. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, that is so good. And then the second thing that uh, I jotted down thinking, okay, this is really, really good. When we become curious rather than judgmental, we can actually get to the reasoning behind the strong reaction. Mm-hmm. That, that's a powerful thought. Uh, it's a different you know, it approach. makes me think. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, uh, when we're when 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 we are like in the early stages of a relationship, where it feels like you know. Ooh, I'm just madly crazy. Want to be with this person? Infatuated, yeah. Yeah, we're we're overly curious, right? Mm-hmm. True. If we're not careful, we'll lose that curiosity, and yet that same person is continually growing, continually changing, and everything seems to move on. So, curiosity, mm-hmm. I, I think, is probably the the last thing we turn to when when we're in an argument, though. I mean, right. we're we're so focused on being right that we lose sight of trying to make things right. So let's say we're in a situation where we're facing a problem, perpetual or solvable. How do we approach the conversation? I mean, I I bet there are some listeners who feel like they're afraid to approach a partner because even just the thought of bringing up a concern automatically kind of sends them into overdrive and makes their heart race and the anxiety anxiety level raises just to think about it. Yeah. And then when that happens, sometimes we avoid approaching it at all, which isn't helpful. So Gottman gives us some really helpful tools on this. They recommend starting the conversation with something called a softened startup. So as we mentioned last week, research shows that the first three minutes of a conflict discussion can predict with a 96% accuracy how the rest of the conversation will go and with 80% accuracy, how the rest of the relationship will go six years down the road. Now, this is because conflict is inevitable, but how we handle it is what makes the difference between relationships that just survive and those that thrive. So Chuck, let's talk Mm -hmm. about this. Here are a few suggestions to help prepare a softened startup. So number one, We want to try to choose a time when both partners are emotionally regulated, if possible. Our patience and our ability to receive feedback, it's directly affected by our physical and our emotional state. Of course, this means sometimes, yeah, and sometimes we have to learn how to trust and be patient in the meantime while we wait, because for some of us, when there's a conflict, we just want to get it solved right away. But if we're not in an emotional state where we can truly receive feedback, that's kind of counterproductive. So when you mentioned that the research shows that in the three minutes of a conflict discussion, I mean, those first three minutes, it can predict with 96% accuracy how the rest of the conversation will go. And with 80% accuracy, how the rest of the relationship will go six years down the road, that would cause me to stop and think, no wonder people feel like this can be a futile effort 
in so many yeah. cases because it is a predictor of not only what they're experiencing about what they're going to experience unless we figure out how to address it in a mutually beneficial way. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I look through this and I think to myself, you know, there's, there's one certain way to prepare for a softened startup and this is the pastor in me. So y'all forgive me, but, um, I, I think we can continually prepare for softened startups to healthy conversations when we stop and literally pray together. Now, mm-hmm. I know I know many, many couples who have never literally prayed out loud together for something other than a meal. I mean, yeah. I, even the most even the most spiritual of people I know have gone their entire marriage at times and never literally heard the other person pray out loud. And yeah, um, yeah. I'm not suggesting that it's um, that it's magical. I mean, that's not what I'm trying to say, nor do I think it's an end all. But I do believe that when we pray out loud and I, I get the picture of me and Jen, we have our chairs, you know, and we pray for the day. And it's not unusual that she and I will reach out almost simultaneously and hold one another's hand and pray mm-hmm. out loud. And yeah. it's. I, I really do think this is spiritually true, Julie. I don't know what the science would say about it, but I believe it's almost, it's a virtual impossibility to hang on to anger, bitterness, resentment, or frustration when both of you are in a metaphorical way, sitting at the table with the divine, sharing mm-hmm. openly and honestly, because it's hard, it's hard to BS God. You know what I mean? It's yeah. hard to not just sit there and bear your soul. So I don't know. I, from a pastoral perspective, I would say if you're going to start somewhere that feels really safe, I think that's an easy place to start. Yeah. Well, and you you mentioned it from a spiritual perspective, and there's a lot that happens spiritually when we pray. And there's also a lot that happens psychologically and biologically mm. when we pray. So if we're trying to, to put ourselves in a posture of humility, to put ourselves in a posture of emotionally, you know, peace, emotional regulation, um, prayer research shows, science shows that prayer actually does help us get into that state. So it's that hand in glove experience, right? That you talk about with scripture and science. When we are in a place of prayer, when we stop, this is a way that not only are we connecting our spirits together, but we're also regulating our nervous system. So I think that's really great. It's really great advice, Chuck. And, you know, many listeners have heard of the phrase HALT, the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T. And if you want something just real straightforward and simple to try to identify, is this a good time for us to get into a conversation about a conflict? Consider HALT. If you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, it might not be best to get into heated discussions during these mm-hmm. times, right? H stands for hungry, A stands for angry, L for lonely, and T for tired. And wow. in addition to this, Gottman recommends that when we when we do decide to uh, confront or have a conversation about a conflict, they recommend that we describe what we notice about the situation versus making a judgment about the goodness or the badness about your partner. Yeah. (laughs) So for an example, you could say something like I've noticed the laundry is still on the ground 
and then move into what you need from them using I statements versus telling them what they haven't done right. So this could look like I'd love it if you could pick up your clothes when you get a minute versus something that is more judgmental and using a you statement like, why are you such a slob? And then you're really good at this, Chuck, acknowledging when they do it, seeking to, to catch our partner doing something right is a major relationship enhancer. And I think gratitude is also another way that we can enhance that five positive to one negative ratio that we discussed last week. Um, that ratio of positive versus negative interactions that helps keep a couple emotionally connected. Yeah, this five to one ratio is true. It's true in my life. It's true in everybody I know. I can't tell you how many couples uh, do come in and you're like we described earlier, they're sitting on separate sofas in my office. You can sense the tension and the the conversation begins with he's such a slob or she yeah. <laughs> never does this. And uh, it, it is it is, it's such an empowering thing to change that dialogue because mm-hmm. of that five to one ratio. I mean, Jenny can tell me five things that are super encouraging and helpful. And then the one thing that she might slow in, although she's super, she's really just a great human, but she, she will at times let that frustration feel like the, well, why do you never do that kind of thing? And you know, it's interesting. The five things that I could hear that are really wonderful and gracious, they're gone. Because yeah, the only thing that remains it. is the one thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I I hear this especially from females in my office. You'd think it might be the other way around, but I hear this especially from females in the office, although it is true on, on both sides of the coin. I can do 15 things to help, and all I ever hear about is the one thing I didn't get to do. Mm-hmm. And that's where the conversation begins. So I think there's a, there's a supportive way to guide that conversation toward that softer process that you're talking about. And part of that is to seek to understand each partner's perspective. Like yeah. it's done by repeating what we believe we heard our partner say in the conflict. You're, you do this well. And I'm, I mean, I've really learned so much from it to, to remember there, there, there is an understanding that can pave the way for resolution and the only person who can confirm if you understand where your partner is coming from is, well, your partner, your which partner. requires yeah. us to be able to stop and say, you know, or my favorite line is, here's what I just heard you say. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, yes. And that's, you know, that's something that we do as therapists often. We have a word for it. It's called reflective listening. So I knew you'd we have listen a word to for our it. partner. <laughs> yeah. We listen to our partner and then we repeat back, or we could paraphrase what we thought we understood them to say, kind of like what you just said. What I, what I think I heard was, is that correct? And here's the great news. If they tell us it's not correct, it's not an opportunity to get defensive. It's an opportunity for us to get one step closer to what they're really feeling or experiencing by them sharing their experience with us. So once both partners have communicated what they thought they heard their partner say and the needs are presented, then we can move toward a compromise or a solution. So again, listening precedes understanding and understanding precedes resolution. So we listen first, then we begin to understand what each person needs. And only then can we come to a resolution or compromise. I feel like I need to have listening precedes understanding and understanding precedes resolution etched on my bathroom mirror 
so that every day I'm reminded of the power of that sequence. Mm -hmm. Listening can, can lead to understanding. Understanding is required before resolution. And I think we all want healthy, peace-filled resolution. So, uh, you know, last week, Julie, um, you mentioned that criticism and contempt are two things that can move conflict from healthy to unhealthy. So Mm -hmm. what are the other things that can can move forward. I, I think you mentioned that Gottman calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which, by the way, sounds <laughs> yeah. overwhelmingly daunting. Yes, I think they call it that because when we enter into and remain in the conflict with these things, it's kind of somewhat doomed from the start, yeah. right? So these four things, these four constructs are, as you mentioned, criticism, contempt, and defensiveness and stonewalling. So I'm going to say those four again, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. So Mm. I'm going to break it down a little bit more. Let's start with criticism. Criticism is not what we often think. It's when we attack our partner's character versus just stating a complaint. So you can think about this. Am I criticizing them or am I stating my complaint? I, Another way to do this is to think about how you can depersonalize your concern to avoid criticism. Criticism. So that's when you use I statements, right? Instead of you are this, it's I am experiencing this. I am feeling this way. I am noticing this, right? Now, contempt is when we talk down to our partner. We may roll our eyes or be overly sarcastic. Contempt at the core is an attempt to regain power in the conflict. Mm. But it never works well to connect the partners. It only divides. So even though it makes us feel more powerful in the moment, it's actually really unhealthy. And this is interesting, Chuck. It's actually, contempt is actually the main predictor of divorce in relationships. So not only that, right? So not only that, but studies also show that contemptuous individuals who live in this negativity, they're actually more likely to get physically sick. So contempt can even affect our immune systems. Yeah, it's pretty dramatic. Wow, Julie, that when you said that, it just literally grabbed me like by my earlobes and said, listen to this, that Mm. when we when we have this contemptuous negativity, we Mm. are more likely to get physically ill. I mean, the fact that contempt can affect our immune systems and when you said that, I thought about people that had been in my office who are thinking that the illness is the cause of the problem, but really the illness was a side effect of what's really happening. So it's what, a, I mean, that is yeah. powerful to think about. All of us might have an opportunity to do a little self-reflection on that. Yeah. Well, bitterness, it's not just an old age. It, it can make us sick in a lot of ways for carrying that around. So the third uh, horseman of the apocalypse that Gottman discusses is defensiveness. So I think we all experience defensiveness at times, but it's oftentimes a reaction to a real or perceived criticism. Okay. So when we become defensive, we assume the victim position by assuming that our partner is somehow intentionally trying to hurt us 
or criticize us. So Mm -hmm. if you're feeling defensive, it can be helpful to try and find an area of the request of your partner where you can take responsibility. This moves us out of the victim role and it really helps us from staying in that defensiveness and it helps us connect. And the last, yeah. And the last horseman of the apocalypse is stonewalling. So just like defensiveness is a response to a real or perceived criticism, stonewalling is often a response to contempt. Okay. Mm. So we discussed contempt earlier, that sense of looking down on your partner. And this makes sense, right, Chuck? Because I mean, who wants to emotionally engage with someone who's looking down on them? So instead, nobody shut down, right? They stonewall. And a solution for stonewalling is to take a break from the conflict and return when you're not feeling so overwhelmed with emotion that you shut off all emotions and start. That is so good. Uh, You know, I, I've heard so many different experts talk about how, you know, the importance of dealing with conflict is like the best time is immediate, but that's not necessarily true. Sometimes the best thing to time to deal with conflict is when you're emotionally capable of the conversation, right? Right. That's so true, Chuck. And I think that that is a common misconception because then people, their, their wheels end up spinning. They don't get to a resolution and it can become really frustrating. Now it is important to make sure that if you're not going to address the conflict right away, that you do come back to it at a time when you're both emotionally regulated. Yeah, because we don't want to use that as, as an excuse to avoid it's That's actually another way of just stonewalling. So, uh, I just, when I think about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, just my only word is yikes, uh, (laughs) because I, I I feel at some point in my life, I've probably been in all four and done. Oh, we all all have. Yeah. But I mean, that's so good. Mm -hmm. Um, it really does go back to what our real heartfelt desire is in the communication, doesn't it? I mean, if our desire is to wound the other person, these four will get the job done. But if our true heartfelt desire is to grow past whatever the frustration and conflict is, and if the desire is enter into a better, new, healthier understanding to experience greater degrees of peace and contentment in the relationship and enjoy each other as the gift that God has designed the relationship to be, then, well, we, we all know that truth is what helps us get there. Truth and love to rule over our emotions. And just from a pastoral perspective, you know, two things that has hit me is be honest, but don't be cruel, you know, be honest. And then secondly, yeah, but be vulnerable. Um, Mm -hmm. It would appear that vulnerability seems to be kind of at the core of many of our emotions, especially those we try to hide. So to be vulnerable with your spouse or, the person that you know you're putting into this conversation is having the courage to show up when you can't control the outcome, and yeah. I, I think that's pretty healthy. So when I think about yes. everything we've talked about, Julie, um, I, I really do look at this and think our degree of vulnerability and honesty has such an impact on how we combat these four horsemen, you know, and yeah. Yeah. I. I know in my my own walk, I don't know that I ever really grew into uh, healthy relationships that had significant trust without 
having this sense of, I know we're speaking truth. We're honest with one another and we're being ridiculously vulnerable rather than withholding. Because Mm -hmm. when, when, when one person is lacking in those things, it just impacts everything. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. And there's not the authenticity to truly be seen and known. Yeah. So I want to kind of wrap up uh, what we've talked about today, Chuck. I want to address our listeners who maybe feel like they've tried some of these things in Mm -hmm. the past and it just doesn't work. Maybe they offer their partner feedback and their partner just constantly hears criticism or shame. Maybe they're trying to do all of these things well and it turns into these knockdown drag out fights. Maybe the conversation starts well, but it ends up in a screaming match. Mm-hmm. So for some clients, these practical steps that we discussed, they just need that. They, they just need a little help. But for others, these tasks that we talked about, they can feel impossible to complete in the moment. Right. For some people, you might know what to do in the moment, but it seems like whenever conflict arises, there's no controlled action. It's just this heavily charged reaction. Mm-hmm. And I want to speak to you in this moment. And this isn't always the case, but a lot of times as a trauma-informed therapist, I think this is important. Usually when these communication skills don't work well, it's oftentimes because of some unresolved trauma or difficulty with emotional regulation. So I don't want to oversimplify the conflict resolution process by not bringing that up because I think that would do a disservice to people who have tried this and feel frustrated that it's not necessarily working for them in that moment. Uh, You know, that's, uh, that is super helpful. I think for everybody, one of the things that, uh, I, I wanted to mention to our readers is on last week's podcast, Julie, you offered some really, really helpful advice. And I didn't tell you this when we were together because it took me a few days to process it. Honestly, um, I came back and you, you made a mention in there about how uh, your spouse or significant other, they, they might convey something to you that is neutral, but you mm-hmm. receive it in a defensive posture. I, right. um, I had this very weird uh that statement had this very weird impact on me. And mm-hmm. so a, a couple of days after the recording, Jenny and I were talking one night and we'd gotten bored with whatever we were trying to watch on Netflix. So we just turned television off and we started talking. I said, I want to, I want to talk about something that Julie mentioned on our podcast. And she said, I know exactly what you're going to say. And I thought, oh boy. <laughs> you know, she knows and uh, she said, when I listened to it, it was, it was all about me stating something that was neutral and you receiving it in a defensive posture. And I thought, crap, mm. that, <laughs> she hit the nail with her head, you know? She knows you well, yeah. Yeah, but I, I say all that to say to our listeners, when when something like that happens on this podcast and you feel like, oh my gosh, that's me or that's us, I encourage you, go back and listen to that podcast or even that segment multiple times and mm-hmm. let, you know, let God kind of direct your your thought process about how does that impact me and how does that impact us? And then yeah. I found this to be really helpful this past week. And again, just from personal experience, I shared my aha with three dear friends and asked them to listen to the segment on the podcast again and give me their feedback. And you know what I discovered? Um, mm. Everybody knew that was prevalent in my life, but me. 
And it was such an aha. So in some ways, I felt like our recording, even though I was in the studio with you, our recording was almost like a therapy session for me. And I suppose by by way of that for Jenny. So I just encourage all of our listeners when one of those when those things hits you in this boy, just whether you're on Spotify or Apple or whatever platform you're using, use that go back 15 seconds button multiple times and Mm. listen to it and let it sink in. So thank you, as always, for listening to us. Next week, we'll discuss how you to determine if your trauma is calling the shots in your relationship, and if so, what to do about it. And we'll also discuss how you view and experience emotions and how that affects your conflict styles. That's going to be fun, if not (laughs) a tad, you know, challenging. If yeah. if you practice these steps this week and you find that you or your partner get too heated to move forward, don't worry about it. It doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. It just means that maybe there's some trauma or as Julie would say, emotional dysregulation blocking you in that moment. I love Julie gave me this word early on in our podcast that that just means not yet. And yet not is such a yet. powerful phrase. Thank you for bringing that up, Chuck, because I do think that's really important, that if we struggle with implementing some of these things, it doesn't mean that we're not going to be able to do it ever. It just means that perhaps we're not able to do it yet, but we can continue to learn and grow. And, you know, we all have a lifetime of experiences that we bring to any relationship. So it's not uncommon to need to sort through our own responses to emotions and triggers and conflict. And I love that you shared an example this week of how you did just that last week. You took ownership of it and that's how we grow. And I like to describe kind of working through some of these things relationally as what I call a sandpaper experience. Have you ever put two pieces of sandpaper together? You know, when you first kind of rub them together, it's pretty rough, right? But If you continue to work through things and to face into it, eventually, over time, you'll find that you kind of smooth each other out, just like Sam That is so good. So thanks again for being with us. Julie and I will be back next week. But in the meantime, please share these podcasts, listen to them again, and look for Julie's Mental Health Monday on our blog. That's on our website, PositiveTalkPodcast.com. So have a great, great week. God bless you. Bye now. Thanks again for joining us for this week's episode of the Positive Talk Podcast. Julie and Chuck will be back next Thursday with another positive conversation as they merge faith and psychology. Have a great day, and as always, go in peace. Mm